Welcome to the Mindset Forge. My name is Barton Bryan, your host. And this podcast has a couple of focuses. First of all, I want to interview fascinating people. People are, that are making an impact in the world today. And I also want to dig deep with them. I want to go back and find out what makes them tick. What was the thing or the obstacle that they really had to overcome, whether it's in their childhood or in their adulthood, that really galvanized who they are today and why they choose to do what they do. It's my belief that in sharing amazing stories, there's a cathartic experience that happens, not just with me and the interview, but the actual listener. You guys out there listening, hearing what's going on, hearing the stories, not just admiring this person for incredible accomplishments in life, but actually empathizing with what they went through and seeing them as human beings. The same faults, the same insecurities, the same fears that we struggle with. But they found a way to get through those obstacles, to take what life threw at them, to have the right mindset, and to forge forward. So you hear it now. Mindset forge. I want to find out why people do what they do. Take the mindset that gets them through the obstacles and helps them shape and forge something great out of something that may have been really messy or really challenging in their life. So let's get started. My first interview is with my friend Larry John II but he's known as LJ. Now, LJ's got an incredible story of overcoming obstacles in his childhood and really finding a way to make a true impact beyond what's normal for a normal trainer, even with Camp Gladiator. To give you some perspective, a trainer at a gym, they might train 10, 15 people a week. A trainer that does outdoor boot camps, they're successful if they're training 50 to maybe 100 people in that amount of time. Larry trains over 400 people through outdoor workouts and virtual training. And I'm not talking about like he's got 400 likes on Facebook or he's got, you know, 400 followers on Instagram. He has 400 people showing up to his workouts, engaging him in live fitness, whether that's outdoor at parks, schools, and churches, or in a virtual setting where they're live on video, they're watching him, he's watching them, he's correcting their form, he's giving them the energy, the motivation, the fun factor, all those things, and 400 people are working out continuously with Larry. That is incredible. But there is so much more to LJ than just his massive impact in the community of Camp Gladiator, both locally in Austin and all over the country because of his virtual workouts. He is a standout, but why? What makes him so much that way? Why is he driven to be the best? Why does he do the things he does to help people on so many levels through this uh, unique Camp Gladiator platform? We're going to find out today in this interview. So without further ado, the great LJ. Hey, Barton. Great to have you here. I'm very excited to kick off this podcast with you. And I, as a friend of yours, we've known each other for five years and, and your colleague, I've watched you just absolutely excel in this in the unique space of camp gladiator and just give you guys some perspective camp gladiator has been for the last 12 or 13 years an outdoor group fitness program kind of a boot camp style workout at parks schools churches parking lots all over the city and in various cities across the united states where trainers engage with people in unique functional fitness now larry john came on board about five years ago and had just had a lot of success because of the way he really connects with people, creates accountability, and just never lets people give up on themselves. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that later, but I want to give, give LJ an opportunity to talk about not just kind of what, 
what he's up to and and how he impacts people. But but go back a little bit and talk about his childhood and some of the things that he had to go through that's really, in a word, kind of galvanized who he is today and why he is such an incredible human being. So um, without going into too much more detail, tell me, tell me what it is about Camp Gladiator that really kind of aligns with you and, and what your kind of purpose is. Yeah, Camp Gladiator, it's, it's just amazing. Um, you know, from, from day one, just, just even experiencing workout with you, uh, just having people, the community out, you know, doing goals, doing things together and doing it in a fun, dynamic way. It just it truly showed me like, man, this is truly what I would love to do to be able to impact people and to do it where you're not necessarily, you know, nothing wrong with personal trainers. But, hey, they're inside a gym. It's every hour on the hour. OK, next assembly line, whatever. But with Camp Gladiator, you can do it all at the same time, which I love. Uh, and, and even unfortunately with COVID in 20, 2020, uh, now we have the virtual platform. So now we can even take things to the next level where I'm not just training people, you know, outdoors, but now I can, you know, I have, have campers in, in probably about 30 other states now other than just where we're at, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. LJ has taken the concept of our virtual Zoom workouts and he is just absolutely, you know, found a way to maximize the, the opportunity to impact people. Like he said, 30 states, you know, all over the, you know, all over the country, people who need fitness, but cannot necessarily go to a gym or don't feel comfortable going outside or wearing masks and things like that in, in, in an athletic way. And so he's just been, you know, the front runner in how to do that successfully with us. But LJ, this is obviously 2020 has been a crazy year, but for you and your family, kind of a, an exciting special year too. What happened January 4th that, that, that started this whole year off with an incredible story? See, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm a dad, uh, you know, I have a son, he's, you know, 19 and it's crazy cause I'll be, you know, turning 40 next month, but, uh, we had a girl, uh, so a, a beautiful little baby. Her name's Layla page. Uh, and it's funny we, we wanted her to be born in 2020, even though everybody was like, oh, you know, try to do it in 2019 tax break. We were like, no, we want to do 2020. And then even as it came up to the fourth of the month, I told my wife, can we can we can we do it on the fourth? Because my birthday is on the fourth. It's funny in our family. We all have like numbers together. Right. So like my wife's birthday matches my son's, uh, you know, Stella's birthday matches her cousin. So mine matches uh, Layla and also our dog too, which is kind of, you know, unrelated, but it, it, 2020 started off really great. Yes. 100%. I love it. So in, even in the midst of COVID and all the pivots that we've all had to do, you and your wife, Melissa have been taking care of this beautiful baby daughter. You know, everybody's at home. You're doing virtual, everybody's quarantined, but you also got this beautiful baby girl that you're taking care of. Yes. Yeah. My, my wife is, you know, a teacher. We have another uh, daughter, Stella, who is, you know, going to be eight later this month. So just like a lot of other families, uh, you know, around the, the country, around the world, dealing with virtual training, you know, schools, uh, you know, just everything all at once. It's it's been a lot. And then obviously running my own business with Camp Gladiator. So very fortunate for family, you know, grandma coming over a few times a week to allow me to do meetings and my workouts, you know, helping with, you know, Layla and Stella. So, um, but yeah, we definitely make it work. So it's been pretty awesome. One thing I, that's fascinating about you as, you know, just as a colleague, but I think for your campers looking at you and how you're able to do it is you're just your commitment to impact. So tell me a little bit about like, how do you just, how do you see your relationship with the people that you train? 
you know, it, it all starts day one. It's, it's those first impressions. It's, it's me kind of doing things, you know, old school that, you know, some, some people slash, you know, trainers may not want to do. And that's like a phone call. Like it's kind of, I say, quote unquote, old school, right? Uh, It's making that connection. It's, it's getting to know them. It's, it's finding out kind of their why, like, what are they looking to do? Is it, do they want to be impacted, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, like, or is it all, you know, is it, you know, all those at once. So it's, it's kind of starting from there and then it's just holding them accountable and, you know, everything that I do, whether it's a virtual workout or if it's an outdoor workout, like I truly pour everything into it because I want to make sure they're getting that best experience uh, possible, uh, you know, for that one hour time, because I hear it a lot from my campers. It's the best hour of their day. It's a great way to de-stress, to release, to get more energy, uh, to just be super happy. And of course, to keep them healthier, uh, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's great. And it kind of starts from that initial phone call. And then, you know, whether it's social media, whether it's, you know, through text messages, uh, but just kind of keeping tabs on them and letting them know that I'm here. Like, uh, it, it's not like a, a typical gym setting where they might not call you for a year or be like, Hey, by the way, are you going to continue with us? <laughs> so that's kind of, you know, where I'm at. Absolutely. And I think the, what I've noticed from you is you have that unique secret sauce of, your results based, you know, the, you know, the fitness industry, you know what people need to be doing to get healthier, to lose weight and all that kind of stuff. And you're providing that. But like you said, you make it fun. You make it the best hour of their day and you do that consistently so that they can count on you. Because I think trainers in my book, trainers are kind of like artists sometimes or musicians, like they're super passionate. They got a lot of heart, but they're not very you know, they, they're not as reliable as you might want them to be, or at least that can be the perception. Yep. Uh, and I think you did an incredible job at you know bringing the passion, bringing your best effort every day, but also making people feel like you're not going anywhere. This is your life's work, yep. right? 100%. Yeah, and it's and it's from me. It's an absolute. It's clear as day that that's happening because there's no other reason that that 400 people. Uh, you know, can choose to work out with you on a, on a weekly basis through outdoor and virtual workouts. It's just, it's a phenomenal thing that very few people have ever seen, even considered could happen. So uh, kudos to you. Now you're thriving in your life. You've got an incredible family, you and Melissa are great parents and, and you're making it all work in this, in this kind of new reality we're in. Uh, you're also thriving in your business and we could go on and on about your business and the impact and all that kind of stuff. But there's, there's, you have a very unique kind of upbringing and some, some things that happened to you, some challenges um, that I think people are going to be kind of, I would say, just knowing some of these shocked by. Um, and my, my challenge to you guys as listeners is, is when you hear Larry's story, when you hear LJ's story, um, understand that like this is, a, this is a, you know, he's talking about him being a boy going through this. And having to make really, really hard choices in his life at a very early age that defined who he became, that in the end makes him who he is today, the incredible husband, the incredible trainer who is able to do such good and be so positive in people's lives. So you put that in the back of your head as as, uh, LJ uh, takes us through some of his childhood stories uh, for the first 12 to 15 years of his life so that we have a better understanding of what you know, what LJ is all about. Yeah. So I'll start kind of, you know, at the beginning. So, uh, I was actually born in Florida and 
I think that my parents at the time had recently gotten married, but they, they separated about a year in. And then from there, uh, I went to Maryland for a year or two. And then I grew up, grew up mostly in Georgia from the age of like three to 12. Um, later finding out, of course, some of this information. So uh, my parents actually split. Um, they split up because I was actually taken to the hospital when I was about one years old as a baby um, because I had a broken arm, a broken shoulder, and it was determined that I was I was shook. I was shook, you know, as a baby. Uh, and unfortunately, my my mother um, actually blamed my dad for it, even though it was really her that actually had done it. Um, so she kind of wanted to make herself uh, look a little bit better in a better light and decided to divorce my dad. And that's how they separated. So basically growing up, I only had one parent. I was with my mother. Um, so, you know, growing up, I think it was around the age of four or five um, where uh, abuse set in with, with my mother. And it was uh, just a, a crazy thing to go through. So it wasn't just like your normal, like, you know, spankings. It was, you know, kind of using what she had and kind of, you know, hitting me across the face or, uh, you know, threatening me to, you know, take off my clothes and, and just be out of the outside of the house, um, you know, for not doing something or even at one point, you know, threatening to put me in the dryer. It was just kind of crazy things that I kind of started to, to see early on. Um, and then it was actually the age of, of seven. So, you know, of course, you know, she's my mom kind of going through the day in the day out. Uh, but at the age of seven, excuse me, it was right before it was, it was actually six, but, uh, I remember I was, uh, in first grade and she was, uh, she was dating a guy, his name was David. And I remember him because at the time they both had two, she had a Nissan Z, he had a Nissan Z like 1984. Um, and I would get in trouble at the, the daycare for whatever reason, uh, you know, being a kid and he would pick me up. And when he brought me home, uh, it would just be him and he would whip me with a belt. And it got so bad that I was actually at a pool event uh, at the daycare and they, I was in my swimsuit and they saw marks and they kind of, you know, questioned, they're like, Hey, what happened? And it was literally that day that I was taken um, kind of into custody and put into foster care. So that was the first time that I was put into foster care. And that was at the age of, you know, six going into seven, um, I don't remember much uh, about, you know, those those foster parents. I know it was it, it was good. It was a good point in my life about that time. Um, for whatever reason, right next door, their apartment where they live, there was a, an elementary school. And, you know, I don't know if it was me acting out just because of certain situations that I'd already been put in with the abuse with, you know, just the the threats with, uh, you know, just, you know, everything and, and, and already kind of making up lies. Uh, to why, you know, I had a mark on my face or above my eye. But uh, apparently I acted out in first grade and I was then sent to um, like a, another school, which was a little bit further away. And I was kind of put into special needs. And I remember this clearly because uh, this is back then when it was okay to have like a three by three uh, room with a door that for whatever reason, if you, you know, misbehaved, you would be put in this room. Uh, and I guess remember, you know, other kiddos that were just kicking and screaming and just, it was just a crazy experience. This was at the school. This was at the school. Yeah. This was Midvale Elementary in Georgia, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, where we lived, uh, where I was when I was in foster care. 
Um, the good thing for me is I was, um, I was bright back then, so I was smart, and especially at math. I love math. And what they did is they would uh, keep me in this classroom, right, the special needs. And for math only, I would go to, you know, quote, unquote, a normal classroom. Um, and I started doing so well that they eventually allowed me to be you know, back, you know, in this classroom all day. So I was no longer in special needs, which was great. Um, ended up going, you know, back to my mother probably around the age of eight. Uh, the abuse would still happen, you know, occasionally. Um, but it was also around that time that, uh, so for me, you know, especially in elementary school, it was almost every single year I was in a different school, you know, so I never really got to keep friends, meet friends, you know, do anything as far as like sports. I love baseball. Um, and you know, the Atlanta Braves and watching them win championships back in the day, like I was always watching TBS. Um, but she, you know, would, would have these different relationships and, Sometimes they would be like physical, like fights with with these guys or like with these boyfriends. Uh, so it was it was around this time that uh, there was a big change because all the lights would be out and I would be you know in, in the living room or watching TV or whatever. And you know my mom would come in, she would turn off the the light, she would you know peer out the window. Obviously she was acting paranoid. But if I ever did anything or make, made a sound like she would hit me upside the head or smack me or, you know, just anything, the smallest movement. Right. Which was crazy. Um, and it was a little bit later to find out that that she was doing drugs, that it, it kind of started. Um, you know, I don't know the exact time or how old I was, but this is when I kind of picked up on it. You know, I was, um, you know, probably around eight or nine years old at that time. And it was. It was it was crazy. Um, but another thing that kind of set in, there was a lot of, you know, different uh, things that were kind of happening, happening around the same time. But um, she started stealing and then she would ask me to steal like she would be like, OK, you know, or, you know, hey, go to Burger King and say that, you know, they, they messed up our meal and, you know, that that, you know, you don't have the receipt and it would work. Like, I mean, obviously, I'm a little kid. I'm like nine, ten years old. They probably didn't believe me, but maybe felt bad for me. Uh, but that kind of started me doing it also. And it wasn't like I was, you know, just, you know, high dollar stuff, right? I was, you know, super young. So I would, you know, get whatever she wanted, like ham or something to eat for that night. Uh, but then I would do baseball cards. That was my thing. You know, I, w- I would, you know, go back into the, the restroom and, and, you know, do it unbeknownst to anybody and, you know, put them down my shorts, whatever, and then just walk out. So this continued for, you know, a a little bit. Um, And then, uh, you know, obviously kept getting a little bit older. You know, obviously it it was apparent, you know, it was apparent as far as the drug use. And it was actually during one of her episodes where she told me that she was super honest. She was like, you know, by the way, uh, you know, I'm the one that abused you, you know, and, and shook you because I didn't really know how to take care of you or, or you know, when, I w- when you were a baby and I blamed it on your dad. And I had no idea this whole time because, you know, I had never seen my dad. Like, I, I believe he was paying child support. I know that he would, you know, occasionally send me something in the mail. Um, but, you know, she, whatever money he did send me, like I would put under my pillow and like my mom would come and take it away or steal it or whatever. So for me, like there was no like big Christmases, like no like 
holidays. Uh, but I would still, you know, I still loved her. And, you know, she was obviously still taking care of me to the best of her ability while she was doing what she was doing. But like, I remember one Christmas where I had these shells or, you know, pearls or something, of course, not real, but, and I like made her a necklace, you know, I would just do little things to show her like, okay, like here's something, you know, for you. Um, but you know, as time kept progressing, I think, I don't know if I was probably around 10 or 11, um, it, it then became apparent that she was also prostituting. So this is something that, you know, she would, she would do obviously to get money to use, you know, I'm going to say probably for, for drugs or whatever else she was doing. And at that time she didn't have a boyfriend, but there would be guys obviously that would do the same thing with her that would, you know, come in and out of her life. And, you know, I remember at one point we uh, were in the back of this truck and, you know, going down this street and someone walked up because obviously they were going to do a transaction and they took whatever it was. And for whatever reason, they didn't pay the guy and, and proceeded to speed off. And, and this this guy, uh, this drug dealer literally, you know, shot at our vehicle when I was in the back seat. So I'm very fortunate that. Uh, you know, nothing happened to me, but there was multiple situations where it could have been, you know, so much worse. Um, but, you know, obviously I was older, so I was very aware, knew what was going on. I was super smart. And there was a lot of times that, you know, me and whatever guy she happened to be, you know, getting high with would be sitting out in the front parking lot while she was, you know, at our apartment doing her thing, uh, you know, with whatever guy to to get money. So it was it was crazy. So, for me, uh, I think the biggest thing, the biggest step that I took um, was, you know, one night we were we were staying with one of these guys because apparently there was a, a small fire at our apartment. Not not ours. Right. Uh, but she had had me walk back and I was able to do a, a lot of thinking, you know, to myself. And I was like, you know what, like this is not what I want for myself. I don't want to be in, in this this situation. And I proceeded to to walk to this bar that she used to work at. And it was run by these two ladies and they were super nice. And I, I told them what was going on and they kind of took me in for the weekend. And I'm not sure. You're how old at this point? Uh, I believe at this point I was probably 10. So you're 10 years old. So for those of you who have an 8, 9, 10, 11 year old, imagine... A boy, 10 years old, having to make a decision to, you know, go to a bar, basically run away, seek help from a, a place that, you know, he's hoping there's a friendly face there. There's somebody who's an adult who can take you and and give you some sort of a, you know, a chance because you're just yeah. in hell. It sounds like, I mean, I just, yeah. I'm sitting here dumbfounded by everything that you're telling me going like, how does a kid make it through this? Yeah. So tell me about, so these, these two ladies took you in for the weekend. Yeah, it was like New Year's of like 1990. You know, I was born in 80. Um, and they had a friend. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember his name off the top of my head. Frankie. Frankie. Um, and we were, you know, it was it was New Year's Eve. Of course, I'd stayed in one down that weekend. And I was at the bar. Uh, you know, I was not, you know, doing anything crazy, but playing pool and, you know, I've, I've played pool a little, little bit ever since I was young. And, you know, I met Frankie and we, you know, he was, he was a father. He had, they had five kiddos and he lived in the mountains of Georgia. 
And we had a little wager going where if I beat him in pool, then I would get, he'd buy me like a Dr. Pepper or something. And if he won, uh, he would actually take me with him to go visit his family um, for a short period of time or for the weekend or whatever. So it came down to the eight ball. He ended up winning. I ended up going up uh, with, with, you know, Frankie um, and, and got to meet his wife and his kiddos. And it was awesome. Um, it, it was actually a highlight of, of kind of what I was going through. So I stayed up there for the weekend. Um, his kiddos, man, there was, uh, I believe the youngest son was maybe about five or six. There was a daughter that was eight. And then uh, they had three more sons. One was 11, so a little bit older than me, and then like 14 and 15. And it was, you know, just nothing but land. And you could kind of run around, get lost in the woods, uh, just do crazy things that I'd never really experienced. So after that weekend, uh, he ended up bringing me back, you know, to those ladies. And they were like, we don't really know what to do with him. So why don't you just keep him? So I proceeded to go back. And I think I ended up living there maybe for almost almost a year. So as it turns out, I'm not exactly sure what Frankie did. It was kind of like the eBay back then because he would go to Atlanta. He would get a bunch of, you know, kind of junk. And then he was kind of building his own store and trying to resell things. Um, so during one of those trips, he actually had found my mom and brought her to where I was. And um, she had told me that she was in rehab, that she was doing better. And I believe it was a short period of time later uh, that she actually came up with this uh, friend of hers. His name was Gary. And you'll hear Gary a little bit later in the story. He had a Mustang, uh, so I remember him very well. And that day, they had come up, and they basically took me on like a day trip. And we did a few things, got my hair cut. I remember I got the Belle Biv DeVoe cassette uh, that, you know, back then. Um, so I, you know, stayed with Frankie and his wife. And at, at some point, we, we moved to Mobile, Alabama, which was just, you know, no trees, no nothing. You, your mom, and Gary? No, no, no. This is, this is the, I was still with the family. They, they only came up for a day just to kind of come visit. It was like a day trip, right? So nothing, I'll get to that here shortly. You've been gone for a year. Almost a year, yeah. They come visit for today. No cops are involved. No. Like, so she didn't actually put out like a missing no. person's no. report? No. She knew she was in the wrong, and that's why, you know, with Gary, she was trying to get help or, you know, at least say that she was, right? So I ended up moving with this family, uh, you know, still with them, but was in Mobile, Alabama for a short period of time. And, you know, there was just, we had so much fun, you know, with so much land and doing things. And somehow they got me enrolled in the school and, you know, whether it was guardian or whatever they had to do kind of backdoor. Uh, but there was a lot of help that we did with Frankie, whether it was getting up early, helping him, him, you know, kind of in his, you know, big storage unit that he had and we would all get up early right the boys and we'd kind of help out and then I just remember one morning I woke up and and the mom I don't remember her name but she was like okay you're, you're not going your mom is coming to get you and pick you up and that was that was my last day you know in Alabama and with them and told them goodbye and and they were kind of a godsend for what I went through and that's when I went back with my mom so um but uh go ahead I'm still wrapping my head around this 10 year old, this, you know, maybe 11 at the, at the end of your time with Frankie and his family, but just the, you know, had, the need that you have, I mean, at that moment you had to be such a survivor. Like you had all the things that, that we take 
you know, for granted, you know, a place to go home, someone to tuck us in at night, someone to tell us to brush our teeth, you know, like all those little things, like mm -hmm. they're not there. And you find that for a moment with mm -hmm. Frankie and his family Yep. and then it's pulled away from you. Oh yeah. Yeah. So when I go back at the time, she was, she was dating this guy, his name was Carlos and, and he was, he was great. And he, at the same time, he knew that she was still doing drugs. And, uh, I guess, you know, I remember we went to six flags over Georgia. Like there was some great moments, you know, in there and it was very short lived because he ended up, um, he ended up ending it with her. And I remember that he got her the, the John Cicada cassette or maybe a record at the time. And she would play it all the time. And, and he was a great guy. And she, you know, she always says that, you know, he was his, you know, her soulmate, but unfortunately she, you know, chose the, the drugs over him. Um, so it was interesting because a little bit later on, um, there was two other uh, periods, and I might even have skipped around when I when I talked about the um, when I talked about going to you know with Frankie and that family, and I said obviously I'd ran away. That was actually the second time. There was actually a time before, uh, right before, like right before. Uh, it was it was very similar where um, my, my mom had been gone all night with one of these guys that you know she was getting high with, and I made that decision, like, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do something. And for me, I, I kind of would always go back to kind of what I knew or who I knew, right? Because uh, you know, there's, there was only you know, so many people and so many defining moments in my life. So I remember I grabbed my skateboard, which I'm not a big skateboarder. I didn't know any tricks or anything, but I decided to go up Buford Highway. It's transportation, right? <laughs> it is. It's transportation. Uh, I decided to go up Buford Highway, which is actually where my, um, my foster parents were. Um, I wasn't looking for them. I knew they had moved on, and this was a few years later. But I remember I was trying to, you know, go find a friend. Her name was Sheila. And I, I knew what street that she lived on. And, and for a short period of time, she had lived with us. Uh, and, you know, yeah, it was just, you know, crazy times. But so you're, you're basically like in these moments, you're trying, you're, you're reaching out, you're trying to like, okay, who do I remember right. who may have just made you feel good or right. like had some sort of your, your radar for like, or instinct of like that seemed like a good person. Sheila was probably one of those influences just for a moment there. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and you actually went looking for Sheila. Mm -hmm. And I actually, by this time it was night. Like I started in the day, and then by that time it was night. And I remember for whatever reason I didn't go down her street. I was like, okay, I'm just gonna keep going. And I remember going to a Waffle House, and of course you know, you know, being, you know, early, you know, late nine, early 10, they're like, okay, you know, what are you doing here by yourself? And they ended up giving me, you know, something to eat and then ended up calling like the, the sheriff and they, they took me back to my mom and I was able to kind of play it off. Like, oh, I was worried that, you know, you didn't come home. So, um, later on she told me that she, she knew that I had tried to run away. So that was the two times um, and then you get a little bit later on, nothing had changed. Like I said, she was still, you know, doing the drugs, uh, maybe not prostituting as much. Uh, the abuse was still there. Um, and then I talked about Carlos for a short period of time. Well, we, this was kind of towards the latter part that I was with her. Um, but once again, 
uh, I believe that she was out with another girlfriend and, you know, just, you know, kind of doing whatever. I decided to, you know, pack my backpack with some bread and some other stuff. And I jumped on my bike and decided to go look for Carlos because I'd kind of know I, I knew a little bit of where he lived, um, which it turns out I didn't go the right way. Uh, and I ended up at a TGI Fridays and I remember talking to this older couple and of course they're like, um, it's nighttime. What are you doing here? Uh, but for whatever reason, I was able to kind of get out of that situation. And I remember, uh, kind of, I think I'd given up. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not going to find him. I, I chose the wrong street or whatever. And I think I was going back to the house and I remember her pulling up with, you know, one of her other guy friends and it's funny, like she didn't say anything like it's kind of like she knew, but, you know, she didn't really know how to react or want to make it worse because, I mean, what else could she do to make it worse? I was pretty much living it almost every day. Um, so, so what what happens? I mean, this is just like perpetual abuse, drug use, you know, just a mom that's not mm-hmm. there emotionally for you. You're basically surviving on your own yeah. in her house. So what is that thing that happens, you know, when you're 11 or 12 that just really, you know, changes things and starts in, I mean, do you run away again or what's the, what's that final step? Yeah. Usually they say the third time's a charm, but for me it was the fourth time. So it was, it was very interesting. Um, and I'll kind of do, do like a a brief, you know, story, but I remember, uh, playing outside. I was playing baseball with this little, uh, kid, um, next to our, our little apartment that we had. And for whatever reason, I, I'd gotten in trouble. And, you know, later that night, um, you know, she had one of her girlfriends over and apparently they were hanging out with these guys. And these guys apparently wanted to continue the party and were knocking at the door. And my mom had turned off the lights and she was like, go tell them to go away or you're going to call the cops. So I did. And as I was walking back from the door, they proceeded to bash in the window right there by the door and of course they used my baseball bat that I had left out there earlier um and of course you know it was kind of traumatic ran in the closet wasn't sure if they were going to come in um and you know of course you know she said something to me for leaving my bat out there uh but right after then we were actually staying with this uh this nice you know couple and once again I'm still you know stealing occasionally still trying to get by And I remember that um, I'd had some baseball cards and I had traded this, this, I don't know if I traded like one of those little handheld baseball games back then, but I had that baseball um, little handheld game and I traded for some baseball cards or I did something. And, and, you know, one of the kiddos said something and the teacher ended up taking the baseball cards from me. And I remember going uh, to where we were staying that day. This was another new place. And, um, she walked in the room and she came up right behind me and she pinched my ear and she said, we're out of ham because you had two slices yesterday. She's like, you need to go get some ham. And she gave me 25 cents for, you know, the Coke machine. And she's like, give me Dr. Pepper. And I proceeded to leave. And, um, 100% I tried that night. I really did. Like I was looking for opportunities and it seemed like every time I would like, you know, go to make my move or go to conceal this ham or whatever, there was always someone there. 
So I think it was kind of a, a blessing and, and God kind of looking out for me. And I ended up putting that money in the, the Coke machine. I got the Dr. Pepper and I proceeded to walk a Buford Highway again. And this time I'm like, okay, like I'm going to go to Gary's. Because, you know, I remember, you know, Gary and he kind of knew this situation. Guy with the Mustang. Yep. Guy with the Mustang. Um, so I remember, of course, it's nighttime. And I remember getting to the corner of Buford Highway, very close to where um, he lived. And all I knew is there was there was a guy that was like yelling this. this, And of course, it was dark and I had no idea what he was yelling. I had no idea if he knew me. So I just took off running and I went to, you know, Gary's apartment. And I remember looking up the backside of his apartment there was a light on. I remember knocking on the door and there was no answer. And of course, you know, I'm like, okay, what do I do now? Like I'm running out of options. I'm running out of people that I know. So as I'm walking down the front of the apartment complex, he pulls up in his Mustang and he'd just gone to KFC. And of course, you know, I tell him all about what was going on. Uh, you know, luckily he had a little extra for me to have some dinner and his, his girlfriend was, was actually inside and I think she was taking a shower. Um, and that's why she didn't answer. But we had kind of made a plan uh, for me to get on a train the next day to go up to Baltimore. That's where my my real grandfather lived on my my dad's side and um, actually my mom's side. Sorry. And um, we I remember we'd gone to to Farmore and I'm, you probably don't even know what Farmore is, but it's it's kind of like. It's kind of like Walmart where they have a lot of things, but you can also rent videos. So I remember we went there and we rented probably like five uh, WWF, like, you know, WrestleMania, like these, 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 you know, classic videos, right? My favorite was always uh, the ultimate warrior. But when we got back to his apartment, there was a message on the answer machine. Yes, answer machine. I know it's, it's crazy, uh, but it was my mom. And somehow she knew that I was there. She was like, Gary, I want my son back, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, we, we kind of looked at each other. We're like, what do we do? He's like, okay, I'm going to have to go take you to the, you know, to the police. And fortunately, um, his, his story confirmed mine, right? Because if it just would have been me, you know, being, you know, 12 years old, they would have been like, okay, like, sure kid, like, let's, let's go take you back to your mom again. Um, but he confirmed the story and everything that she was doing and they, they put me in shelter and I don't remember how long I was in this shelter, but, uh, honestly, it was one of the, like the, the worst experiences that I had, I had had. Um, yes, you know, you, um, that you, you were you away from your mom, which was like on some level a positive, but then you were thrust into this horrible shelter environment where yes, other kids and yep, more abuse. Uh, not necessarily, uh, you know. Well, you know, not necessarily abuse, but I mean, of course, they you know try to do where you're still learning, you're still doing things. I just remember um, that um, you know, imagine like one of those stages where you have stairs on both sides. And there's typically a column that comes up the one side that kind of conceals the stairs. I remember that, you know, one side of that stage, because we were inside the stage, like sleeping cots or whatever, but was like broken off. And I guess for whatever reason, I don't remember the specifics, but other kiddos were like throwing these these rocks at me while I was sleeping, um, you know, for whatever reason. Um like I said, I, fortunately, I wasn't there too long. Um, I went into foster care again. So this is the second time. And my foster mom, her name was Jeannie, and she was older. She was she was amazing. But um, 
they had actually called her, said, hey, you know, come pick up, you know, Larry. And then they called her back and they were like, okay, don't worry about it. He's going back with his mom. Um, and then fortunately, they ended up calling her back. And they're like, okay, this is, this is happening. This is what we're doing. So I proceeded to go into foster care again for about a year. And the, the crazy thing is, is I was still in elementary school. I was, uh, you know, in, I think, fifth grade by this time. And I went to Midvale Elementary, which is exactly where I went to when I was in foster care the first time. So it was, it was kind of crazy. So, um, you know, through me being in foster care, I was able to, you know, reconnect with my grandparents in Florida and I was also able to to meet my aunt, which is my dad's sister, and she lived in New Braunfels. Um, so at least for the Christmas of 2000 and excuse me, 1993, um, they don't typically allow you know foster kids to to leave the state, um, but they allowed my grandparents to come pick me up and then take me back to Florida to spend you know a week or whatever with them. It was it was an awesome Christmas. Um, made cookies and, you know, met her dog and got to go to Disney World. And then they they took me back to, you know, Atlanta. And then it must have been like a week later that my aunt and my grandfather, my dad's dad, and then my cousin, they had driven 20 hours all the way from New Braunfels and they came and picked me up and then they took me back. And that's kind of how I started my life in Texas. So much to unpack there. But I mean, I think as a audience listening to this just you know i mean there's it's there's so much unspeakable history that he's gone through at the end of all that or when you you meet your dad and you're starting to get connected with your family like how are you how are you able to pivot and 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 start to you know kind of move in a direction where you're you know you're you're you care about school you're gonna you know you end up going to college and all and and you you know you have this very successful life after that Like, like how do you do it like what is what was galvanized inside of you? What was that thing that you kind of forged out of the, the stress and the horror of your childhood that you were able to utilize to be, you know, to be healthy and to be safe and, and to move forward? I think, you know, those, those latter parts of my childhood, it's kind of like when you come to, you know, that fork in the road, it's like, okay, if I go left, I'm going to, you know, be just like my mom or I'm going to have pity on myself or I'm going to, you know, not have this, this care and just kind of, you know, slide by or whatever, or it's like you go right and you can choose to be, you know, better from it. You can be like, okay, I don't want to live my life like this. I don't want to put, you know, I don't want to be a parent like this. Like I wouldn't want to put my kids through this. Um, and you know, for me, you know, and, and meeting my dad, that's like another challenge, right? Because I hadn't met him in 13 years. I hadn't really, even, you know, talk to him, but maybe, maybe a handful of times, you know, I, you know, there was, there's things that I was, I was not even really aware as far as with my dad or, you know, why he, you know, didn't check on me more, kind of know what was going on. At least, you know, his dad, my grandfather had come to check on me twice. You know, the, the many places that we live was always able to track me down. Um, so I actually lived with my aunt, uh, for about a year and a half, and and I loved it. It was it was awesome. No no responsibility. I could be a kid. You know, she's a teacher. Also, she's been a teacher for many many years. And I was able to you know get a season pass for Slitterbond for two years. Um, so just truly be a kid. And then that is you know since how I met my dad is because 
my dad, um, actually my stepmom, uh, her name is Audrey, had come down. They lived in South Austin, um, in Manchac, which is a part of Austin. And they had, uh, she'd come down and she had picked me up for the weekend. And that's how I met her. Like I'd, I'd seen her through pictures. Um, I knew that my dad had gotten remarried. Uh, but I just, I, I still remember, you know, the first time, you know, actually getting back to, you know, Manchac and, and their house that they had recently gotten and meeting my dad for the first time. I mean, I was 13 years old. Uh, but, you know, for, for me, that was also another difficult situation because, uh, he was like a complete stranger, you know, to me, like, it, you know, this was all still, you know, basically every day for me was, was something different and, and trying to be better than, than what I had gone through. Um, you know, because the, the great thing with him is, is, you know, eventually I think, you know, like I said, a year and a half into it, my aunt came into the room, uh, where I was staying and she was like, so you're going to move in with your dad. And it's funny because I, I really didn't want to, like I, I, you know, seen him like every other weekend or, or whatever the case may be. And I, I knew he was, you know, stricter, you know, chores, already little things that, you know, I had already experienced even just visiting him. And it, it's funny because she didn't tell me this till a few years later, but she really didn't want me to leave either because, you know, she wasn't sure that her brother really knew how to be a dad or was ready for this uptaking, uh, you know, the fact that I was older. Um, but the great thing, you know, with, you know, my parents, and I say parents, um, you know, for my dad and Audrey is because I definitely respect them because, you know, there was a lot. Like I, I, I was, you know, s- school, I was smart. I was also street smart. I just didn't really know how to be a kid, obviously have responsibility have, you know, the, the respect, right. To, you know, just little things that I was able to get, right. You know, uh, it was, it was a stable house. He taught me, you know, hard work, you know, manual labor, um, you know, holding me accountable. Um, they helped put faith in my life. I was able to, to start attending church, uh, which was great. And, you know, Audrey, you know, my stepmom, she was the, the mother figure that I, I could, you know, rely on and actually, be there and actually have, you know, say that I have two parents, um, while I was with them. So it was, a it was, it was a big switch, a big change. Um, but I think through that, it's what really kind of, you know, set me up and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of little things, Uh, you know, whether it's my parents being smart with their money, um, you know, always trying to make the best choices, like even myself, no matter if I was buying a big screen TV or, you know, a car, I would always want their input. I always, always want to know like, okay, Hey, what, what do you think about this? Because I had relied on the fact that they were so good with, with money and, and, you know, business. Um, you know, my dad, you know, speaking of him, it's funny. Like he was, he was in the restaurant business for years, like, you know, Ponderosa, super salad. Uh, you know, he used to manage the one up there on Lamar and, uh, you know, Ben White for, you know, a few years. And then he, um, he kind of got tired of it and he ended up getting his, his CDL and he drove across the 48 States for like about a year. And then my, you know, my stepmom was like, uh, Nope, you're gone like way too long. You need to be closer to home. So then he started working for a Syntex cement company and he was just a hard worker, like, you know, five and a half, six days a week. It was just what I saw. It, it was a norm, you know? So I think that kind of set me up to kind of have that same mentality. Yeah. You're, that is something that, Anybody who knows you knows that you're the hardest working 
trainer in Camp Gladiator. I don't think that's, I mean, I think there's no question about that, like attribute or that, that aspect of your personality and how you, how you take on, you know, the challenges that you put for yourself. So incredible what you went through. I mean, I can only imagine the chaos and the just survival state that you probably lived in for so many years during your childhood. And then you find your dad and your stepmom and that kind of completion or a feeling of like you have a home and you have people that you respect and you can learn from. Like, but thinking back to the, the time in your childhood where you, you didn't have that, like what were the unique gifts that you feel like because of that trauma, because of that chaotic time that you, that you created in yourself, that whether it's survival skills or just some sharpened skill or tool or gift that you have that you brought into your adult life because of that. Yeah. You know, looking back and, and kind of, you know, reflecting even, even now, like, you know, it, it's not every day that I think of, you know, as far as my story and what I've been through, like it's something that I know, but it's also, I've not told the story in a long time. Right. And kind of knowing, like letting people know my true self, uh, you know, so for me, I think, you know, like you talked about the, you know, one of the unique gifts is, is survival. Like just not like knowing, like, I don't want to be in this situation. You know, I'm not meant to be in this situation. What am I going to do to make it better? Like, what do I have to do? Uh, you know, because, you know, whether it's like I know people or I have the ability to, to leave a situation no matter what age I was. Um, you know, coming into the, one of those, you know, forks, those crossroads that we talked about earlier, I think another unique gift that is very surprising, even talking to my wife today, is that positivity, like knowing what I went through and and seeing the silver lining and, you know, not, you know, using that to be like, okay, like, you know, poor me or, you know, oh, darn, like I didn't have a childhood, like using it and being like, okay, what can I do now with the moments that I still have left on this earth? And being positive and, and using that and using the perspective, I think, is, is, is huge, right? Yeah. I, you know, I love that you said positivity. I, that exudes from you. I mean, not necessarily when you're telling the story, but when you talk, if you ask, you know, your campers, your, your, your clients that you train, like they, they know you as kind of this shining star of positivity. Um, and I do think also like, wow, to, to have all that happen and, you know, is to embrace the little things so much differently than somebody who's grew up in, you know, wealthy, ta- you know, house and everything's been given to them and they have no appreciation mm-hmm. of how hard life can be on the other side of the tracks in a sense. Um, you know, what, my father who uh, was, got polio when he was 12, um, he was in an iron lung for 13 months. And iron lung is something that you don't even think about anymore. But in 1950, it's basically keeps you alive by creating a vacuum to help some people who are quadriplegic from the neck down breathe. And so he was in an iron lung for 13 years or 13 months. And the first thing he learned in the hospital in, in San Francisco was nobody wants to hear a Debbie Downer. Like when people would come to visit, he and he was a he was a charming guy. And he were, I mean, he developed a personality like you wouldn't believe because he knew like just from survival, like nobody wants to talk to you unless you're chipper, you're fun, you're positive. And, and he literally developed like, you know, 
an like almost part, a big part of his personality. People love my dad for that part of his personality was probably developed in that iron lung for 13 months as a need to just have interaction, connection, something, right? When his family was still overseas in, 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 uh, in the Philippines. And so, you know, I'm hearing your story and I'm just thinking about like that you and all of that, you came out of it with this understanding that like there is still positivity and that you can bring that into your life. How do you use that positivity now to, uh, to impact your, your clients and your, uh, the people you train? Yeah. So for, for me, it's, it's, it's the little things, right? It's, it's kind of what we touched on earlier, uh, bringing the best to a workout, you know, doing the best that you can to brighten their day, whether that's, you know, through the you know fitness, whether that's through, you know, funny comments at camp or just anything to put a smile on their face to let them know, Hey, like you're not alone. I want you to be here. Like, let's have the best, you know, 60 minutes of, of our day. Uh, you know, for me, it's, it's being able to impact another person's life through fitness and also nutrition, um, as well as the, the mentorship. It's the friendship, the motivation, uh, because, you know, through positivity and kind of what I've been through, it's, it's what I feel is my purpose. It's, it's my why, um, which I think is a, is a great thing. Yeah, and I will tell you, L Day is a very competitive guy. I mean, you you did obstacle course racing, but like from a very at a very elite level with your friend George. When we actually met about five and a half, six years ago, you were doing the Spartan race beasts and and actually doing some of the invitational stuff that was that was uh, happening at that time, uh, Battle Frog and that kind of thing. Tell us a little bit about that and what. Why you're such, you know, I guess how you, how you utilize your competitiveness to really, you know, do out, go out there and do some big things. Yeah. Like I said, you know, I, I went to college, graduated with a business management degree necessarily, you know, was, was very similar to like my dad's footsteps, right. And, and the, the managing business, the restaurant business, the grocery business. Uh, but for me, like I always loved fitness, whether it was, you know, playing softball for, 17 years, whether it was doing my own, you know, fitness routine, whether it was strength training, whether it was running, um, I kind of did the same thing, you know, back then, you know, working at Chili's, I did a lot of late nights and weekends. So I would kind of find my own routine, like, okay, cool, I'm going to go work out, you know, at this time, you know, before I go to work, or I'm going to be able to have this Saturday off so I can go do an obstacle course race. And when I, you know, had done my first race, I mean, it just, it just kind of stuck into me, like, because it's great to run, you know, but at the same time, when you have challenges that you're coming up on, whether it's getting over a wall or carrying a hundred pound, you know, boulder or lifting a tire, like you feel so good once you get past it. And I think in, in a weird way that kind of relates to a lot of the challenges that I had when I was, you know, a, a child and early on, um, you know, things that I've kind of overcame. So I, I fell in love with it. And I believe in, you know, 2015, we did about 12 obstacle course races. So, yes, the, the Battle Frogs, the Spartans, the Tough Mudders, uh, you know, just, just, you know, anyone that we can kind of find that was, you know, w- within like a three-hour drive, right? Yeah, I love, I love that you said that. that the, I mean, in a sense, the obstacles of the obstacle race became this kind of, you know, manifestation of like, oh, you know, your obstacles that you went through in your childhood were absolutely like incredible what you had to overcome like and so you know a, a, a climbing up a 25 foot ladder and going over a, a wall or something like that is 
is nothing in comparison, but it, it gets you kind of in that mindset of like overcoming and getting out of, you know, being in survival in a sense. And I think that I've brought that into the business world also where, you know, if there's, you know, some sort of, you know, challenge or a little, you know, contest or a little competitiveness, um, I think that that is probably also kind of carried over too, where it's not like, okay, I have to win at this. It's like, okay, what can I do? Because number one, you know, I get to impact lives, but number two, I now get to help other trainers as an area director do the same thing and try to, you know, emulate what I'm doing to them because it's not just about, you know, Hey, this is what LJ is doing. It's what, Hey, what is the team doing? Like, what are the trainers doing? You know, what is, what is he sharing? What shortcuts, what systems, which I think is great because it just, you know, all around, you know, makes, you know, us a good business partner. Yeah. So I love everything you're saying and I want to talk about the future. Right, you've got this beautiful nine-month-old daughter. You've got Stella and Jacob, who's nineteen. But like, let's think about five years down the road. Let's start there. What are you, what are you doing ideally? You and your family, Camp Gladiator. Like, how are you impacting lives? What's your life look like five years from now? And then I want to go all the way to like your legacy and like what your great grandkids are going to remember about LJ. So I think for me, and it's, it's funny because, you know, we talk about five years from now and, and typically that's, that's pretty easy to do. And then you run into something like 2020 where this year has been just kind of crazy. But I think that this year, um, has its challenges. Right. And I think that is, that's helped, you know, some trainers even exceed even more and even be better even after this year. So for me, when you say, okay, five years down the road, one of my personal goals, uh, that I think would be amazing, um, you know, now that, you know, part of CG, one of the things that we're doing is taking it to the next level where, you know, we're actually going to be like a franchisee, you know, with Camp Gladiator. So that's going to help us grow even more where we have the potential to be, you know, in as many states, you know, in the next, you know, five years and even be international, maybe around that time also. So I want to know that I'm training people from all the 50 states and then maybe in five years, maybe, you know, from, from, you know, you know, a handful of other countries where maybe 10 years down the road, like I have someone from every single country around the world uh, that I'm able to say I'm impacting their life and showing them that there is a way that they can, you know, stay motivated, stay accountable and do something for for themselves and for their family to help add years to their life and to change the trajectory or where they're going and know that I have, uh, you know, a slight part in that. Uh, but let's talk about legacy, family. You know, you've got beautiful daughter, you've got these, this family who loves you, you know, 40, 50 years from now and LJ's, you know, in a rocking chair, uh, still doing burpees, of course. Uh, yeah. You know, what do they say about LJ? What does your great granddaughters, you know, say about LJ or, or what is the story they tell about you? You know, this is, this is one of those questions that I actually had kind of, you know, talked about it with my wife and for me, it's pretty simple. I mean, I, I want, you know, my grandkids, my great grandkids to, to know that, um, number one, that they can prevail through anything, right. That they can, they can overcome anything and, and whether that's, you know, outside of, of the norm, right. Obviously, you know, growing up in this, you know, type of family, they're probably not going to face some of the same challenges as myself, but whether it's, you know, other friendships or other relationships or, or business, uh, they can overcome anything, uh, and, and not, uh, just kind of, you know, submit, right. Or, or give up or wave the white flag. And I think another thing for, for me is, is just 
having that that perfect balance of, of working hard and playing hard and and knowing that hey yes there's certain times hey there might be the month of august where dad is not going to be you know super you know playful or you might not see him as much but you know hey that's okay like that's his time uh you know it, it's setting up for the rest of the year but at the same time there's other moments where you know dad is playing going to your games going to all the the different things um so that's kind of what i how i feel right just that that perfect balance of of, of work and play um would be a great legacy for me and like i said also just the the overcoming the challenges i think those two would be great yeah, and you talked about your dad being, you know, teaching you hard work, working five and a half, six days a week, going from being a truck driver to uh, working cement, just, you know, doing the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. And you learned those, that, that valuable lesson of hard work. But I love that you're talking about the balance of like, he worked hard, but he also played and he was also there. He showed up, yep. you know, because I think in the end, I mean, I was just listening, listening to a podcast where they we were talking about how achievers you know, we're could be so focused on the future and the goal that they miss the moment. You know, they miss that opportunity to be present for their kids and just put the phone down and say, you know what, this moment is the most important thing happening right now. It's not about me hitting my goal. It's not about anybody else except myself in this family or in this moment with the people I love. That that's one of the things that that my wife is you know we've talked about also is like even Christmas you know or, or birthdays like yes gifts are great. Um, but we want to start doing more experiences, right? Because I even did a post today, uh, you know, that showed an older couple, you know, going to these soccer games for three years in a row. And that third year, you know, he was no longer, you know, there with her. Um, and, and it's not just about those moments of, you know, sipping coffee together. It's the experience that you had. It's the conversation that you had. It's not just about going to games together. It's the experience. It's the lifelong, you know, memories and the moments that you're talking about. Um, so that's, you know, I, I kind of try to correlate that into, you know, CG and my workouts, um, you know, family at home. It, it's, that's a big thing, you know, the experience, um, you know, so hopefully we can kind of all, you know, bring that into play. Man, I love you. I love you more now that I know this story. You know, you've always been a brother to me and I'm just so proud that I got to have my first podcast interview with you and just thank you for your vulnerability and sharing, uh, you know, what happened to you and how that and informs who you are. And I just, you know, I root for you and I hope everybody that listens to this, uh, roots for you, LJ. And, uh, and just is maybe, uh, you know, take something. I'd love for you to take a nugget. I mean, somebody like LJ, who's gone through so much stuff, like just all the abuse and the, and the chaos, and then turned the corner and decided I cannot wave the white flag. You know, I think of David Goggins. If y'all know David Goggins, he's a, he's got a book, uh, he does a lot of public speaking and he's a guy that like went through SEAL training like twice and he's gone through like all the rigorous trainings and he's just one of those guys that just, it's like his whole career is based on not waving the white flag. Like that's LJ. That is absolutely LJ. I'm, I'm listening to you tell your story and just watching you talk about it and you're not somebody who's like super expressive about like telling the big story and dramatizing it. You just tell it with the facts, right? But there's no quit in LJ. So thank you so much. Thanks for the time. Um, just excited to get this uh, get this up on the internet and let people hear your story and, and, and care a little bit more about you. So it will be in the notes, but just so people can find you, LJ, 
where, how would somebody come reach out to you and find you and, and what, if they wanted to train with you or just ask you a question on social media? Yeah, the easiest way, uh, actually, as of a few weeks ago, I have my own website. So it is cgtrainerlj.com. Super simple. Uh, you scroll down on that bottom page, it's going to have my contact information, my cell phone, my email. So uh, by all means, if, if it's, you know, workout related or just in general, you know, just maybe, hey, you need someone to talk to, maybe you can relate. Uh, you know, that's that's what I'm here for. So uh, truly appreciate, Bart, you allowing me to be on here. Uh, you know, I consider you a great mentor, a great leader, a great friend, you know, love y'all's family and, and to be able to do this with you, um, you know, and, and to be one of the first ones is, is pretty awesome. So thank you so much. And just for a wrap up here, as you're finishing up this podcast, go find me on Instagram at Barton Guy Brian. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get further episodes coming your way. Thank you so much, and I look forward to connecting with you. If you have any questions at all, definitely direct message me. I'd love to start a conversation. Thank you.